This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning, Axis family and visitors. It is great to be here. I am Don, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it is my joy to be here uh, attempting to expound a piece of text that Brooks just read that honestly uh, I'm going to try to encapsulate, but it reaches back into an unfathomable text that is so rich we will read in a moment, Isaiah 53, starting 52, actually 52, 13 through 53, that gives us the incomplete career of Jesus as the suffering servant. I uh, walked in this morning with all of these papers and little notes and stickies and um, trembling a little bit until my two brothers, Jeremy and Brooks, held me and prayed for me. And uh, knowing the Holy Spirit will speak through this frailty um, is my hope and confidence. So I'm going to pray again as we take a run at this section of text in chapter 22 of Luke, and we hope you are there with us. Let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you for the riches of your word, for the depth of Jesus Christ as a man, that he's both man and God, and that we, while we struggle with that, Father, it is is the way that you planned it since the foundation of existence that we might be reconciled back to you and sent in mission, walking on the grace that you've paved before us. So, Father, now I humbly ask that you speak through me and that these words are not mine, that any thought that moves us is from you. We ask this humbly in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. We will recall that uh, two weeks ago we were we were sitting at the table where Derek, Pastor Derek, laid out before us the meal and explained, uh, in particular, the nuances of how the Passover meal became what we celebrate and will celebrate at the table in a few moments. And and we saw in there this this moment where where even in that intimacy there was one thought that interrupted such loving intimacy, and that was that there was a betrayer at the table. And so we see in verse 15 of 22 that that Jesus had anticipated the meal, had two of his disciples, Peter and John, set the table with a man that's unnamed in an upper room, and that what we see is a greeting, a welcome of the twelve, where, where Jesus literally in the Greek The word is redundant. It says, with great desire, I have desired to eat this meal with you. That he's yearning to sit with these 12, soon to be 11, and love them. Love them till the end. Serve them. Serve them till the end. To to teach them, as we see in, in particular in the Gospel of John, the last moments he's on earth, teaching them of, of what is and what will be praying for them, chapter 17 of John. We see this intimacy and this great desire set before them in a, in a very 
orderly fashion that's called the Seder, the Passover meal, where each step includes a representation of how they were delivered from Egypt and the bondage there. How one of the elements on the table would have been a a piece of roasted lamb to remind them of the high price of redemption, that it cost, that blood was involved in the cost of redemption. And how he would take this moment, this Seder, and and even in in the bread, what's called the matzah, the unleavened bread, where they stack three pieces on top of each other during the meal, that, that the middle one is removed at a certain portion. It is broken, and the largest piece is carefully wrapped in a linen and hidden for just after the meal. Three pieces, one in the middle broken, such that when the meal is, is done, that which comes after the ophicamen is found and unwrapped. And surely at that moment, Jesus perhaps broke the bread and said, this is me. This is my body, which is given for you. Subsequently, a cup is taken, the third cup in the meal, and it is the cup of redemption. And he says, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out using covenantal language, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the moment would have stirred, would have been so intimate, except for the hand of the betrayer, which was so close to Jesus. The hand that reached and dipped at the simultaneous moment that the Lord had dipped, as he predicted, and the one leaves the room to go out into the night, into utter darkness. And surely we would want the intimacy to be regained of this stage meal that represented so much and now would represent for, for the next millennium until he comes again, a memorial of who he is, the Passover lamb himself. And yet, besides betrayal, as Brooks carefully walked us through, a dispute arises. Surely I'm not the one who's going to betray him because I am so good. And a test of greatness among them breaks out in this most intimate setting that Jesus has earnestly desired to eat with them. We go from betrayal to a dispute. Who is the greatest? I can only see what, we, what Brooks told us, that, that James and John actually had their mother ask for seats right and left for them, that they also, on the road to Jericho in Mark 10, began to also lobby for their own self-position. We begin to see that, that perhaps they are now lobbying again. And perhaps Peter even speaks up, well, well I'm always listed first. I, I speak first. I've walked on the water. Surely it is me. Or Levi, I gave up so much power and wealth as a tax collector. It's got to be me. Or Andrew that says, Peter, I saw him before you. Almost, and it's not funny, but I picture shotgun rules. I saw him first. And suddenly, Jesus carefully and gracefully teaches them what servanthood leadership looks like. That that is the norm and the ethic of the kingdom. To be a servant. 
to be the lowliest, that he himself in the meal had just washed their feet, and perhaps the, the dampness is still on there, whereas they dispute who is the greatest, and he still teaches with such grace, such grace that he pictures the future and their positions and their roles as judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, as Brooks expounded last week. Into that scene, we, we now see debate and betrayal. We, we see these jockeying for positions, and suddenly we are about to see testing, denial, abandonment, and honestly, hostility and chaos from the world that surrounds them. All of this set in this small upper room and a meal that Jesus wanted to eat with them so desperately. And when we see this occurring, we, we can almost feel this, this moment where Brooks stopped last week of telling them of the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and a hush comes over the room. But certainly, in my mind, because I am often picturing myself there saying, well, I want the chief seat. I want to be the chief justice then. I still want to be the greatest. Let me and my talents take hold here, Jesus. I, I can do this. When a name is spoken twice to penetrate the silence. Simon. Simon. Behold. Look. Pay attention. Jesus uses his, his pre-call name, not Peter the rock, the stable one, but, but Simon, the old person. Listen to yourself. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to shake you, literally, to have you shake you, that, that he might sift you like wheat, Having grabbed that attention, the word there demanded or, or begged or demanded permission is only used here in the whole text. But a first century Greek writing explains it. It's a compound, exeaito, that says, beg one to come out from. To literally, in some instances in the writings, to, to take one who is under protected care and take them away for punishment. What Satan desires here is to ruin the disciples. The you here does, that Satan has demanded you is plural. He has demanded you all. Though he is pointedly talking to Simon, he now includes them all. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded you all to sift you like wheat, to bring you out of a protected care. And certainly we begin to step back and say, now this meal seems to be falling apart. This meal seems to, to be coming unglued by the very things of the world, such as power, desire for, for betrayal and money, denial itself and abandonment, which, which has been predicted, and utter chaos as we see Jesus now take that self-promotion and try to bring it back into focus saying he's desired to sift you as wheat. And I, I stand there, a spectator in this room, and say, what does it mean to be sifted like wheat? And we only find two places where we can 
perhaps go for some help in the text. And one is Amos 9, 9, where the faithful are sifted, literal language, sifted like wheat, where a sieve, a metal object where things can fall through, but the kernels stay, are violently shaken, loosening the dirt, dirt particles and anything else, small pebbles falling to the ground. And yet, even in Amos 9-9, a text about most of Israel being taken away in exile, the faithful are held in the sieve, even though shaken. The other place that comes to my mind as I watch this scene is Job. At least in the first two chapters, we get this scene of, of the adversary, Satan, roaming the earth, coming before God Almighty and asking permission to strike Job. And in there, we begin to see some glimpse of similarity where Satan says to God, just take the things away, the blessings that Job has, and he will curse you. And we see that God allows that within boundaries. Take this, but not this. We see who is in ultimate control. In the second chapter, after that has been done and Job doesn't fall away, he says, let me strike his person. Let me just put enough pressure on him. Let me strike him physically. And God allows it. And yet within boundaries, you shall not take his life. And Job, even his wife says, curse God and die. Job says, shall we not take the bad with the good that God gives us. And we will see through those many chapters of Job as others buffet him and, and say things that are so wrong that he maintains a faith, though, though suffering, and at the end is struck in awe of God. And I've always thought, how can this happen? It is when things like the creation of the world are laid before him and the grace that has allowed him to view such things that Job is silent in awe and worship of God who has allowed the testing, but within confined boundaries. And so this morning, I would have you know that while Satan might think that we are just like him, always in need of position and power and prominence, that's not what we find in the text. That's not the leadership of Jesus. When, when we see that, that something else, if enough pressure is applied to someone, we might turn from God and lose our faith or at least stop being faithful. That is not what we see in this text. And it's not on their own accord that this occurs. It is because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is because they had just heard things like this at the Feast of Dedication, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. No one will ever snatch them from my hand. They've heard that. They've heard the words that Jesus is keeping them. They know that Jesus has seen a future in them spoken in the text prior to this, that he will grant them to sit on the thrones. 
they know that, that, that Jesus walks with them through this. And yet again, our question is, why is this allowed? Why does this happen? Peter, for certain, three centuries later, three decades later, 30 years later, will tell them about suffering in the first epistle. In there, he explains what, what some of what suffering does for us. We understand that blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Post-resurrection confidence in testing that he's allowed us to, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, which will never fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that shall be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you are distressed by various trials. He ends that epistle with the same language talking about the the prowling of satan as a roaring lion but be faithful stand firm in your testing because god has you in christ jesus we begin to see that as i as i sift through this text and say my question might not be why does god allow this but why doesn't jesus just walk out of the room because in my flesh, if I'm there and I see betrayal, dispute, denial, abandonment, and chaos, I'm out. You can ask my wife. When things get tough, I tend to back up and ease my way out of a room. It's not a good habit. Why doesn't he leave? Because your Savior is full of grace and truth. Because he's full of grace and he sees who you will be, not who you are. He sees your future, your usefulness to the kingdom, your ministry. He sees theirs. Even, even as he's said that you're going to be sifted, he doesn't say if you turn back. He says, Peter, when you turn back. It is assured because as you are sifted, I, the good shepherd, have hold of you. You will not fail. And we ask. Sure, that's the apostles. They're granted those seats. They're held by Jesus. What does this really mean for me? 2 Corinthians 3.18 looks at our future, our future, the believer's future. We all with unveiled faces, as beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, being right now transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, speaking of resurrection power. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be raised imperishable. And 1 John 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such are we. 
For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him, but beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know this, that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him face to face as the apostles were. He sees your future. He sees their future. Grace laden in this scene strewn about with things of the world trying to buffet the intimacy. Satan has desired, but, but look at the grace in the next verse. I have prayed for you. There it is. I have prayed for you. Part of your homework class will be to look at John 17 and read the prayer that doesn't just stop with the apostles. He prays for us, those who have not seen him and yet believe on their word. He prays such language that, that we might know the love of the Father, that, that as the Father loves the Son, so he loves us. Grace-filled room that, that by now with the prayer, sometimes I, I stand in this room with him of the, of the Last Supper, and I, I peer into it as, I, as I'm looking at an ocean of grace with which we don't drown, but we can never swim out of that we can stand on our own with, without movement. It is not us that makes us float. It is the very buoyancy of that ocean of grace. And that's what's happening in the scene. That's what grasps the desperation and now the feeling of Peter that says, surely not me. In fact, on my own feeling and on my own, I will stand with you. I will not deny you. I, I, in fact, am ready to go to prison and even to death with you. Simon, I say to you, Peter, the rock, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times, even that you know me. If your eyes will glance just down the page, the last denial occurs in verse 61. We see Christ Jesus turn and look at Peter. I've often wondered what that look looks like. I think there is some sadness, but I think there is such grace filled like don't give up. Push on. Press on, brother, because you are Peter, the rock on whom I will build my church. We see that in the book of Acts. As Peter takes a stand to make a replacement for the apostle Judas and Matthias becomes the apostle. We see him stand with the 12 and be the first one to preach the gospel in Jerusalem after the Pentecost giving of the Holy Spirit. We see him moved into Samaria when the Samaritans found Christ through the Holy Spirit to go verify the authenticity. We see him going further to the Gentiles in Acts 15 when, when he has the vision of all things being cleaned. He actually goes into the house of a leather worker, so unclean, but he goes. We see him because why? Because Jesus has prayed for him. Grace filled mercy on this man. I see that in the eyes of verse 61. 
And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And he went out and wept bitterly. I hear the silence before 35 as this has been told. If it's been told to Peter, surely it will happen to me. And Jesus penetrates that with this. When I sent you out, for reference, it's Luke 9. When I sent you without, without money belt, bag, or sandals, and you didn't lack for anything, did you? And they said to the Lord, no, nothing. If you recall in, in Luke 9, they're sent out in a Galilean ministry. And they take nothing with them, no extra stuff, only their person. And they're to live on the hospitality of the surrounding neighborhoods. And if anything happens that, that rejects them, they just simply in gesture shake the dust off their feet and they move on. And all seems to be well. But you must catch the next emphatic two words. But now things are going to be different. Things are going to be different for whoever has a money belt should take it along. There should be some preparations. Likewise, a bag, and usually that was carrying, for, carrying, for, uh, carrying food with you. Whoever then has a sword, doesn't have a sword, is to sell his outer garment and buy one. Now, they will not understand that in a moment, and neither do I when I read this text. I'm like, yes, I'll go get a gun. I'll do whatever. I'll, I'll do whatever you say to arm myself. That's not the way the kingdom is going to be taken. We know that. They're so wrong that when they strike in the opposing text, just opposite here, they strike one of the guards, a servant that has come to arrest him, and, and Jesus picks the ear up and says, Stop it. No more of this. No more violence. And heals the man. Puts the ear back on the head. So what is he talking about? He's talking about post-resurrection life of the believing world who pushes into it with the gospel of grace. There will be hostility. There will be things that you have to be prepared for. That, that even the outer garment which buffets the weather, the sun by day and the cold by night, which, which is miserable if you've ever been in a, in a real hot or cold place without the, the correct garments. And he says... This is nothing compared to that. What's coming, you, you'll need a sword, metaphorically. And it fits the metaphor so well because all of this text confuses me in my mind until I, I look right in the middle of what Jesus is about to quote. The only place in the gospel where this is quoted, Isaiah 53. The only place. So, so we, family, must look like looking on a ring at the stone in which this is mounted. We, we need to drill down into that. What is he saying when he says, and he was numbered with transgressors so that what is written must be fulfilled and that which refers to me has its fulfillment. He refers to Isaiah 52, 13 through 53. He refers to himself in Hebraic form, as being the suffering servant. The servant that's been spoken about by Isaiah four times since chapter 42 of Isaiah. And in particular here, he references the very last verse. But again, in Hebraic form, when you mentioned verse in context, it enclosed and encaptured all of the context that came with it. 
So Jesus is saying here, I am the person that Isaiah was speaking about. And hold tight while you listen to what some scholars have said, weaves a crown, of course, of thorns that can only fit one brow. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance, though, was marred, disfigured, more than any other man in his form, more than the sons of men. But thus, in that marring, he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will now see, and what they had not heard, they will understand by grace. For who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, the servant, grew up like a tender shoot, and like a root out of the parched, dry ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should really look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to them. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief and anxiety and torment. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we thought nothing of him. We esteemed him not. But surely... Our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he has carried, yet ourselves esteemed him as the stricken one. We assumed he was smitten of God and afflicted, and he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray each of us turning to our own way. But the Lord caused all those iniquities to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he would open not his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he doesn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom this stroke was due. His grave then was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, pouring himself out. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. God Almighty will be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. And the verse that Jesus quotes, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will be lifted higher than anyone, in other words. And he will divide the, the booty and the, with the strong. In other words, he will dole out gifts as the conquering one. And if he's conquered, how can this next statement be? That he is numbered with the transgressors. The Greek is anomos. He is the one without the law, considered wicked, considered a criminal by the rest of the world. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded. 
for the transgressors. When we look at that, that he was numbered with transgressors, he's telling them in the upper room, if I have been considered a criminal, you will be too. You will be looked on as horrendous, crazy, lunatic people. And they will want to put you away. You will feel the grief. He promised them that again in the upper room. John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of great joy, for I have overcome the world. That, that, that m- message there of the word that, that means crushed. In the world you will have crushing. You will have tribulation. Stilipsis. It means to be sieged from all four sides and squeezed. But I have prayed for you. I will be numbered with the transgressors, but surrounding that text, I am the victory. Jesus Christ proclaims his victory on the way to cross by quoting this, that he is the suffering servant, that on account of him, kings will be stunned, 52.13. Stunned to silence. The proud, therefore, will be eclipsed. He is alive from the dead in 52.14, sprinkling the many of us and bringing forth through grace things that we could not comprehend. He executes God's plan completely, and he's telling them this in the upper room. Returning to Luke 22 as we close. If he's given them this sort of message, this moment where they've been through so many emotions and so many needs so quickly, they've wanted prominent positions. They've wanted to be the one who sticks close enough to even go to prison or to death. They've wanted all these things that the, that the world might have given them. But, but what I think he's now given them is what will carry them through the rest of their days. A view of radical grace. Undeserved merit that the suffering servant will lay his life down for every sin they had committed or will commit a radical grace that reshapes, reconciles, and reforms the heart to look like and be in mimicry of the very servant that he says leaders should be like, his son, the Christ. They said, look, Lord, We have two swords. Jesus, in using a Hebraic form to mean stop it, says, it is enough. Enough. You will understand when the Spirit comes upon you. Know that's true. Know that that grace is waiting on you. We move to the table just like they were at the table today with those thoughts. Knowing it is Jesus that we need to take hold of. Knowing it is Jesus who is enough. Knowing that his grace allows us, as we sung in the first song, to to run the race, to finish the course. 
to, to be shaken, but not fall through the sieve. It is him. It is him who on this very night turned this meal into this memorial, which we now share in great remembrance of all he has done. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this meal. We thank you for the way Jesus turned such a carefully orchestrated meal about redemption into something we can tangibly hold as memory of his redemption of us. That on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it, gave thanks to you, Father. Gave it to his disciples and says, take and eat, all of you. This is my body which is broken for you. And when the supper was over, Jesus took a cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, take and drink, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you do it in memory of me. Father, we praise you as we come to the table. May we grasp this ocean of grace that you allow us to swim and frolic in. And we praise you for Jesus Christ in whom we take hold of with both hands as he holds us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.